everyone, this is Rana Kinsey, Executive Vice President of People and Culture at Emerald and Advertising Week, and today I'm speaking with Melissa Swift. Melissa leads transformation for Mercer US and Canada. She's an expert in HR transformation, HR data and analytics, DNI, and her work leverages data analytics, a healthy dose of pragmatism, and a humanistic view of the workplace to create extraordinary outcomes for organizations. Her book on a more humanistic future of work, called Work Here Now, Think Like a Human, Build a Powerhouse Workplace, has been named one of HR Magazine's best of HR books. The book provides a practical, humanistic roadmap to a transformed world of work that mirrors economics and empathy. It includes 90 strategies that organizations and teams can employ to create a workplace where people are the fuel and not the brakes. Welcome, Melissa. It's a pleasure to have you. It's great to be here. Melissa, I want to get right into it. Um, you're the expert in HR transformation, and you've done a lot of uh, work on the great resignation and what it means for our labor market right now. So I want to speak a little bit about that. Where is our labor market right now? Yeah, so it, you know, it's an interesting moment because if you think about a lot of the dialogue right now in the media is around layoffs. So you think, okay, well, you know, they're, the the labor market, we must have things must have completely changed since since the Great Resignation, and there's all these people floating around. And actually, that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, we are still short about four million folks in the United States, and that's that there are four million more job listings than unemployed people which is wild when you think about it. That's a, that's a big gap. And, and we don't actually believe that it's going to get better structurally really anytime soon. I mean, you've got everything from you know birth rates that have been coming down for decades. You've got people spending fewer hours in the workforce, which is the same as actually losing people in the, in the workforce, right? Because it's, it's cutting down on the total number of hours worked. Um, you know, you've, you've got all sorts of trends that are causing the labor market to feel, you know, kind of more, more pinched to really create what I think is going to be a, a longer term sort of slow burn labor crisis where organizations are just never going to have, again, access to the same number of people that they were used to kind of routinely taking in in, in prior decades. And part of that is that people are... Um are retiring and doing more passion projects as well. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at demographically what's gone on in, uh, in Germany and Japan, uh, you know, we are, we're on the same demographic cycle just, you know, some years behind. So I'll never forget, you know, maybe 20 years ago or so going to a Nissan factory in Japan as part of a business school trip and being shocked that so many of the workers had gray hair you know, they had these manufacturing populations that were that were effectively aging out. That's the journey we're on. We're just, you know, some decades, some decades behind. And, you know, we've, we've managed to, as, as Americans do work longer, we've managed to stave off the retirement cliff a bit, but it's, it's still coming. And what do we have to think about differently, knowing that the labor market shortage is not going to close anytime soon? What, and, and no, trajectory of the labor market in general, what do we need to think about as far as how we're hiring, who we're hiring, and, and what our pipeline looks like in general? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. You really have recourse to kind of three different strategies if you're an organization. So number one, you can redesign what the work looks like. Um, and, and that means, you know, maybe you say, okay, we don't need a human answering the phone anymore. Maybe a chat bot 
could could take that work. Or maybe we need to remove some of the coaching and mentoring tasks from overloaded middle managers and get some of those folks who might be heading into retirement to work part-time and to coach and mentor our early and career populations. So, you know, that's that's one thing. You can actually redesign the work so that you need a different workforce or you need fewer or different people. That's that's one angle you could pursue. A second angle you can pursue is to dramatically improve your employee experience. And what that means is really digging into how work gets done on a day-to-day basis and what makes it pleasant and unpleasant. You know, it's 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 so funny when we talk about employee experience, you know, we think about like, well, when I start, you know, do they have balloons at my desk? And but it's not all kind of fancy high concept stuff. For instance, a lot of organizations are looking at things like is our technology kind of crummy? Do our employees have to use too many apps during the course of one day? Uh, because things like that actually really drag down the day-to-day employee experience of work. So if you can improve things like that, I mean, there's when I was doing research for my book, there was one statistic that 18% of people had left their job hoping to find better technology at the next job, which is really striking. It wow. shows, yeah, it shows just what a role some of these very basic things about how work gets done you know, play in our lives. So that's the second piece of what you can do. And then the third piece is, you know, when we say the labor market is constricted, there are some large groups that either don't get tapped into properly um, or don't get tapped into at all. So, you know, we've already talked about folks kind of on the retirement cliff. You know, 60% of jobs in the United States require a college degree. Does 60% of work in the United States require a college degree? I would argue that it doesn't. And so you get a much bigger and more diverse talent pool when you take that requirement out. Um, there's also groups like formerly incarcerated people who have an unemployment rate, um, you know, several times that of the general population. And something like one in every three Americans will end up with some kind of a criminal record, right? That the formerly incarcerated people, it's a big, big chunk of the population. We incarcerate a lot of folks and organizations have fantastic experiences hiring those folks and really incorporating them into their workforces. And then finally, there are groups that we incorporate but don't necessarily include. And I would say foreign-born workers are a really interesting example of this, where one in every six workers in the United States is is born outside the United States. But workplaces are not always great if you're a foreign-born worker. You know, there's tons of, you know, microaggressions, things like people will talk about um, stereotypes about national origin in a way that they would never talk about gender or ethnicity. You know, people will serially mispronounce your name and giggle about it. Things like this, again, when you think about that day-to-day experience of work, it really grinds people down. And so it's it's worth looking at, you know, are you adequately really retaining and including your foreign-born workers? Because that's, a, that's another, again, it's a huge population. It's a great source of talent, but many organizations don't do right by that group. Very interesting. So you talked a lot about different aspects of, of getting different pipelines, including um, formerly incarcerated people, foreign workers. How about people who maybe have been out of work due to parental duties? Is that a market that that employers should try to get them to incentivize to come back? And what does that look like? Absolutely. And I would include in that group, by the way, I mean, I would say it's even a broader group of, let's say, caregivers, right? Because they could be caring for, you know, ailing parents as well, in addition to caring for children. Um, and, and organizations need to really think about for that group, 
you know, there's been so much back and forth about, you know, return to office and the where we work. And but for groups like that, a lot of times it's more the the, the when and the how. So can you incorporate greater flexibility on on scheduling? This is something that is, is really interesting, both in knowledge work, you know, do people need to be working nine to five? Or can you have, we've seen some organizations say our core hours are, let's say, nine to one, and everybody needs to work those hours, but then you can go early or later, you know, whatever your your preference is, as long as you get the work done. Um, and in, in blue collar work, we've seen organizations do things like divide up shifts. So let's say we get a traditional eight hour shift, which makes it hard to pick up your kids or visit your parents in the nursing home, we know whatever it is, chunking it up into two four hour shifts that can be spread differently. So really changing some of those dimensions of flexibility to better include that that caregiving population, again, can give you access to an amazing talent pool. So you do agree that the one good thing that came out of COVID was the ability to work from wherever you wanted and have more of a flexibility around your schedule. So do you think that that is going to have to stay in order for us to retain and and attract talent now and in the future? Or do you think that it's going to shift back to um, the five days in the office? No, I think I think the conversation about flexibility will continue. You know, I don't necessarily have a dog in the fight of, you know, how many days should you be in the office? Because partly because I'm not sure it's the right question. I think, you know, we again, we really focus on the where and the the when, the how, the who, the what. You know, we have all these other levers of flexibility to play with. And we have to think about all of the dimensions kind of together. And in in one coordinated universe of of choices, and you know, really understand things like you know, we have we have a lot of beliefs about how work gets done better, and they might be right and they might be wrong. You know, as a, for instance, many executives believe that innovation and collaboration happen better in person. I've seen research proving that and proving the opposite. You know, again, I don't necessarily have a, a view or a dog in that fight. Um, but I do think the positive thing to come out of COVID is at least we're having the conversation, we're examining the dimensions of flexibility, and we are starting to have a more open conversation about how we exclude people when we're inflexible in certain ways. And I think that's the right conversation and it's the right thread to pursue. And if you are an organization that wants to see whether or not working in a flexible environment works for you, what are some of the tools you can use to measure that? measure the success of the flexible environment or measure the success of having people in the office? Yeah, well, I think it's it's good to have a set of metrics that you focus on that are both business outcome oriented and worker well-being oriented. So a lot of times where this discussion gets tripped up is there's this over-focus on kind of like activity metrics, like, you know, literally, are people doing keystrokes, things like that. I think it's fundamentally unhelpful. Right? Who cares how often they're typing? Literally, who cares how often I move my mouse? It's not helpful. What, what they should care about are, are our business goals being met. That in and of itself, though, isn't enough. The other piece is, and this is where we're seeing progressive organizations really do a lot of thinking on this topic, is how do I measure employee well-being? What does it look like either for people to be well or to be unwell? You know, does it should we, at a certain point, is it actually a red flag that they've worked too many hours? You know, some really brute force pieces. Um, but, but you know, starting to dig in on what are some of those other metrics, looking at their health data 
and seeing what the utilization is for um, treatment for depression and anxiety. If that goes up, you know, is something going wrong in the workplace? And again, I think it's a, we're at the early edge of it, but it's a really hopeful trend to say, okay, you know, let's look at how do we understand whether our workers are well or not. It's very interesting. So the workplace does play a, a significant portion of mental health. So you're saying if the data shows that mental health is depression is increasing in your utilization, then it is time to look at what's going on in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's not that there aren't other factors. It's just that to your point, you know, we all spend a huge chunk of our lives at, at work. And I do think it's a really, what I see is a really positive development in the working world is more and more organizations are looking at the organization's role in well-being instead of placing all the focus on the employee. You know, it used to be here, go meditate, go do yoga at your desk. Right. And Honestly, those were tiny band-aids for kind of like a big wound. And what organizations are now doing is taking a step back and saying, okay, are there things about our working practices or about our ways of working, about our workload that are, are having this negative impact on well-being? And does it make more sense for us to solve, you know, systemically rather than sort of pointing the finger at individuals and saying, you know, go do your 10-minute, you know, visualization and meditation? So interesting. And for research like that, the one you mentioned where a workplace looks into what they're doing right, as well as what could be improved, is that something that they contact you to, to do or are Mercers of the world? How does that data get measured? Yeah. Because that's not really an HR function, right? A lot of the times we put a lot of emphasis on HR needs to solve all of these problems, but that's not a tool that HR has in-house to be able to, to use and start measuring. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's something that as an organization, you know, you internally, you need to kind of build support for, but it is something where the, the Mercers of the world can be very helpful because, you know, we have a lot of resources around everything from, you know, benchmarks for employee listening data to, you know, a large team of, of workforce analytics folks that can look at where well-being issues might be popping up in how people flow through the organization or what the, the drivers are of departures. So it's, you know, it's, it's something where I think leading practice organizations are really centering in and aligning on the issue, but a lot of times to do the analytics, it is, it is fantastic to have outside help. Absolutely. And is there analytics that an in-house HR team can pull in order to, to make a decision about the health of the workplace? You know, I would say, I think, you know, again, just starting with, are there any, you know, kind of big picture red flags in how your health plans are being used? I would say big picture red flags in terms of just number of hours worked, things like that. Look at the really simple things are, you know, you can, you can look at through Microsoft Viva, how busy are people's days? Um, you know, just start with some of those very Basic, don't be afraid to, you know, there was a great Adam Grant article on kind of what was like the stunning power of obvious insights. Don't be afraid to start with the basic and obvious stuff because there's actually a lot of good information there. I love that. In your work, you mentioned you did research for your book. So can, can you tell us a little bit about your book first? And then I have a follow-up question to that as well. Yeah. So the, you know, the book is called uh, Work Here Now, Think Like a Human and Build a Powerhouse Workplace. And it, really, my goal in writing this book was to answer a question that I get asked by clients all the time. You know, what are some things that we can do to practically start on the journey 
of just making work work better at our organization, you know, kind of both increasing productivity and increasing worker happiness. What are some practical things we can actually go do? So the book has 90 strategies in it, uh, 45 at organizational level and 45, you know, things you can do with your own team, right? At team level. Because I thought, I thought both were important. You know, a lot of the action in organizations happens within teams. So you need, you need both categories. Uh, so the, the goal was really to kind of nail down on a data-driven basis, what are some things that we can do differently to really make sure that, that work is actually effective? What are those top three things on an organizational level, in your opinion? Yeah. So number one, I think there's, there's one strategy, um, that, that I consider so crucial. I actually repeated it twice and that is, that is doing less. Um, it, it, it's really interesting. I, I love that. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. It's, it's actually kind of doing less is a very exciting concept. And uh, it, in the book, I talk about the work anxiety monster, which is basically this little voice in everyone's heads going like people are lazy and people are slow and you yourself are lazy and you're slow. And um, if you can shut down that voice, do fewer things, do them better, uh, that actually, in a lot of ways, really improves work. That again, we've just over-rotated on sort of too fast of a pace, too many activities, and we're, we're, not, get, we're not getting the things actually done. Um, we're, we're not really making the kind of progress that we want to as, as organizations. So, you know, doing less is a big one. Um, I've also got one about just talking to people about their everyday experience of work. And I think this is one that just at team level is incredibly powerful, that a lot of times, you know, we sort of, we want to hear if the work is getting done or not. We don't want to hear about the how. And we need to talk about the how, because actually as a leader, that's, that's where you can, again, that's where you get the productivity gains from. And that's where you get the happier, more engaged employees is when you start talking about, like, what are the roadblocks to getting things done well? So what does that conversation look like between a manager and an employee? Can you give us an example? How you, you're the manager, Melissa, I'm the employee. How do you start that conversation? Because when you tell people that the how, it sometimes feels like you're micromanaging them if you're asking way too many questions. So what's that balance between actually getting the data that's useful and productive versus coming off like you're micromanaging their process? Yeah, I think it's a great, it's a great question. And it's, it's very well observed that it can be a fine line. So what, what I would recommend is really starting with open-ended questions that, that tap into your employee as an expert on the work they do. You know, there's, there's kind of a respect thing here that you do this work. I consider you the expert. I am asking you the expert for your view on how it, it's going or how it went. And so, you know, okay, great. You know, this report is done, whatever. What, you know, what do you think went well as you were doing it? Um, you know, phrase it as, are there road bumps I could help remove, right? Go into a little bit into servant leader mode. I think when you phrase it that way and you're, you're asking questions, again, as the, to the employee, as the expert on their work, it's a really different conversation than kind of a micromanaging conversation. And, and I find, you know, in my personal experience that people really appreciate being asked and consistently have wonderful ideas about how to do this all better. Even very, very junior people um, will come in with some great suggestions about how to get stuff done better um, in ways that both, you know, again, will make them happier and will get the work done, you know, to a higher quality. Like it's, it's kind of a win-win. 
Love that. In organizations where we hear they're the top three, top five best places to work consecutively, um, what are some of the things you're seeing that they're doing right? Well, I think, again, they have those good sort of listening cultures. That's a really common facet. In the book, I talk about, you know, quieting your suck it up voice. And that's both as a manager and organizations that are great places to work have quieted their organizational suck it up voice. When people bring them problems, they don't tell them to suck it up. They don't tell them to push through. They listen and they take action. And again, that sounds so simple, but it's really hard for a lot of organizations to do. A lot of organizations either don't have the mechanism sometimes to listen to their employees and particularly with large blue collar populations, you know, like if people aren't sitting in front of a laptop where they can fill out an engagement survey on a laptop, you know, organizations will just not survey those populations, which is, which is bonkers when you think about it. I mean, a lot of folks have smartphones at this point in history, but it happens. So either they don't have the mechanisms to listen or a, a very common mistake is to get employee engagement data and just not do much with it or to only focus on kind of the headline, you know, okay, our employees are 79% engaged, you know, great. But you asked them 30 other questions and then you didn't look at the answers to any of those questions. And sometimes these really sort of boring seeming questions about things like I have the tools I need to do my job, you know, agree, disagree, actually have powerful information in them. So I think those, those organizations that are great places to work, look at those kinds of questions and answers too, both on a an organizational level and managers have those conversations on a team level. And that feedback loop is why people feel like it's a great place to work. You brought up an interesting point around engagement surveys. In your opinion, when is the best time to have that engagement survey? Is it during the the 30, 60, 90 onboarding? Is it midway through? Is it twice a year? Obviously, you know, we get some surveys during the exit, but it's a little too late. So when can organizations send those engagement surveys and build a culture where employees trust you enough to share that feedback? Yeah, I mean, I would say take in the feedback at the cadence that allows your organization to really act on it. So if you, you know, you do it once a year, but then throughout the year, employees see real results from what they told you and real action and, you know, like you're doing things, um, then that's great. You could survey employees every day. And if you don't do anything with it, like nobody's going to believe in it anymore. It loses its power. So look at a cadence where, okay, well, if we do this, let's say quarterly, okay, we can take action at this cadence, et cetera, et cetera, and really match up your ability to act. You know, I would recommend more data gathering points than than once a year. But again, don't gather it all the time if you're not going to do something with it. I think it's it's really critical. And I'll make a point about onboarding as well. Many organizations miss a trick by not engaging with employees on a very personal basis early enough in onboarding. You know, we've all done these sort of wonderful technological things where there's like an onboarding dashboard and, and blah blah blah, but. It's sort of shocking to me within organizations how many employees are really unhappy within, let's say, a month of joining. And so making sure that there's both formal feedback collection, but also just sort of managerial high touch within that first month or two, that seems to be really, really important. That that issue seems to be sort of, and I don't know if it's that we got out of the motion of onboarding during the COVID period or that we've over-rotated on the tech, but... I would say pay real attention, sort of months one and two. And is that through like a, a regular one-on-one check-in? 
Yeah, I think it's 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 people conversations, right? I, I just don't see I, I don't see a substitute for kind of the human touch in in that particular period of time in the employee experience. And uh, what would you, I agree with you 100%, of course, but what would you say to a manager who feels like they're too busy to have those one-on-one conversations frequently enough to get that sentiment back? Yeah, so a lot of what managers are really grappling with, and I am unbelievably empathic to this, uh, I deal with it myself sometimes, is managers' calendars are really too crowded right now, all of us everywhere, every industry, every level of management, right? It is, it is, it's a really existential challenge. So part of what you can do is, uh, you know, we've seen some whole organizations go through and say, okay, we're going to kill off every standing meeting and see which ones we really need back. And inevitably it's a tiny fraction that they actually end up needing back, right? It's, uh, it's, they end up freeing up hours and hours. So you know, there's some simple kind of clean up the hygiene of meetings in your calendar and kill everything you don't have to attend or everything you shouldn't be organizing as a meeting. Uh, and you don't necessarily need, because I often do hear, well, I'm bogged down with just one-on-one my direct reports. You don't necessarily need incredibly cadenced one-on-ones with your direct reports. One thing you can do is clear out enough time on your calendar that you're free a lot and they can just call you when they have a need. Or you could do, I saw a wonderful Twitter thread on having the one-on-ones with your direct reports each week. And then at the beginning of the week, reaching out and saying, I'm keeping yours because we have something to talk about. I'm canceling yours unless you have something to talk to me about, et cetera, et cetera. And actually curating each week who the manager needed to talk to. And I think there's a lot of power in strategies like that. I love that idea. I think that's that's a very smart way to manage your calendar as well as making sure that one-on-ones are not just regular check-ins on like administrative stuff or tactical things, but more of like, how are you doing? How are you feeling um, type of conversations? Yeah, absolutely. That they're, they're real discussions, right? Love that. What resources do you recommend for our listeners who want to start becoming better listeners in the workplace and, or to start looking at avenues of where un- there's a lot of untapped talent and potential to help with the pipeline? Yeah, well, you know, I would say number one, I'll, I'll start with the second question first. Um, there's, uh, you know, a lot of great organizations that help kind of, um, let's say, match you up with underserved um, populations in the in the workforce. I mean, recently I was on a panel um, with somebody from an organization called ConConnect that helps formerly incarcerated people make a, a more substantive connection to the, to the workforce, right? So organizations like that are fantastic. And there are those for every group, right? There are those for, you know, caregivers returning to the workforce, for formerly incarcerated people, for veterans, you know, get, get to know that landscape because you honestly, you need those, you need those conscious connectors. Um, that's, there's not a substitute for it. And then, you know, in terms of improving, you know, your, your listening, I think there's, you know, there's an array of great leadership thinkers out there, um, you know, folks like um, Kevin Eikenberry, um, Kevin Cruz, you know, like just absolutely terrific, Dan Pontefract, you know, really um, some very, very interesting thinkers out there where, you know, you sort of um, can't go wrong uh, reading some of their concrete strategies. And I, I think that's a good thing to aim for. And again, this is something I aimed for in my own book was 
you know, it, it makes us feel nice to read all these vague pronouncements, right? But what I like about the work of some of the folks I just named is, um, you know, they're, they're, they're concrete, right? It's here's how to have a listening conversation, or here's what creates that, or here's what creates better communications. And it's interesting because it's kind of a trend that, that I'm seeing in, in leadership development overall is more focus on the basics and, um, you know, just a, a greater emphasis on how to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation properly, which again, it sounds so simple, but it's the foundation of everything else. Absolutely. And how can people find you? Yeah, so a great place to connect with me is on LinkedIn. I'm very active. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. Um, and I, of course, recommend checking out the checking out the book. Um, as I said, it's it's pretty substantive and practical, and I love discussing it with folks. So if you check out the book, ping me on LinkedIn and let's talk about it. I love that. Thank you so much for your time, Melissa. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. 